0: Good morning. Welcome to Eastlake Online. For those of you watching from your couch, uh, thank you for all of you who made it out this morning as well. We're so glad that all of you are here, or maybe you're watching this on replay or whatever it is throughout the week. Thanks for making church a little bit of a priority. It has been a bit, it has been a hot minute since I've been up here doing this thing with you. Um, we had, uh, my mom came and spoke, my wife spoke, we did Christmas Eve outside, and uh, then you guys got a bunch of Cool Christmas gifts, and you're dressed so well today. You look amazing. If you're you're probably wearing something you got for Christmas or, or uh, whatever, you, you look better. Uh, you smell better. Maybe you got some perfume or cologne or whatever. You uh, you you look six hundred dollars richer per person, about ish. Not all of you, but those of you who drove a car of a certain level, you look about six hundred dollars richer this morning. Um, it's been a, a wild last couple of weeks. And uh, we're, anyways, we're glad to be in 2021, whatever that means, with all the changes that that is uh, supposedly supposed to bring. Um, new year, uh, a new chance to kind of start some new things, maybe some new disciplines, some new habits, um, some new whatever. We're going to actually do a series. Usually I do a series on sort of habits or whatever at the very beginning of the year because our, our minds are there. I push that back one one series, so just a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to do something different uh, this week. We're going to start a series called Letters to Our Next President, uh, and it's not a series on politics. Don't worry. I know that that was... As soon as I said it, my mom my mom asked me what I was teaching um, over Christmas break or whatever, and I said, oh, I think we're going to do this series called Letters to Our Next President. She goes, ooh, you know, like the politics and the juiciness and all the stuff like that. And I'm like, ah, we just... We don't really do, I don't like to talk about any of that. It's not really that. It's about a series on wisdom. And I thought about this idea of what if you could write a letter to uh, the president, the incoming president, um, whoever that is, just kidding. Um, And uh, if if you knew it would make it all the way to the Oval Office and it would actually be read by uh, him, then what would you write in it? Um, And the reason I thought that that was interesting is because a couple of things. One, every year for the last 15 years, I've written my wife a Christmas letter. It shows up in a Christmas ornament that looks, is shaped like a gift box. And every Christmas morning, she knows that there's going to be a letter in there from me. And uh, it's always, it highlights the last recap of our year. It's full of kind of inside jokes and little things uh, along the way that we've learned, either about our kids, about ourselves. It's, It's really, it's the most lovey, gushy, whatever it is you want to, yeah, exactly. You're never going to read it, so don't worry about it, Sean. It's fine. Um, it's, uh, it's very it's private, you wouldn't even want to read it if you, even if you could um, it's usually, like I said, a recap of the last year it's a little bit about how lucky she is to have a husband who cares so deeply to write a Christmas letter um, who stays up late on Christmas Eve night to be able to write this even though he could do it months and weeks in advance doesn't matter, all of those things um, and since it's only meant for her it's personal and, and like I said it probably wouldn't make sense uh, or at least parts of it to an outsider with no context of our relationship contrast that Uh, So that's one type of letter. That's not the kind of letter I'm talking about, because I don't don't have a relationship with the incoming president, and neither do you, most likely. Um, Contrast that with a book that I read over Christmas break um, from a guy, about a guy named Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message version of the Bible, who has a pastor, son, who's a dad, who's a pastor, has a son, who's a pastor. So I've kind of identified that, because my dad's a pastor, and uh, and he 's kind of written me some stuff over the years, um, and i 've never kept it, um, and so it 's not going to get published like this one. but these would be letters from a dad to a son they called him he called them Timothy letters and Eugene was a prolific writer, and so it makes sense for Eric, who's a pastor north of Spokane, by the way, in a city called Colbert, really small town, small church. Um, but uh, his, his dad wrote him these letters, these Timothy letters. Kind of highlighting what it means to be a pastor in the vocation and it's really interesting for me because I mean that's the vocation that I'm in it might not be as interesting for you, but you the, the unique texture of these letters is that they were written with an obvious audience in mind that expanded just beyond Eric his son. it was we're going to write I'm going to write you these. Um, it's going to be pearls of wisdom. And the anticipation is that you're going to publish these posthumously after I pass away, and he passed away in 2018, um, so that I'm, as I'm writing, I'm aware of an external audience also reading these, and perhaps getting insights or principles or things that could be takeaways for their p- situation. Even though I'm writing to a specific situation, there's also like, I'm, there's like an over-the-shoulder sort of audience reading and perhaps gleaning something from that. So... Uh, After thinking through the contrast between both of these two types of letters, I thought what might be interesting is a letter to the president with that second kind of thing in mind, with with a a little bit more general, a little bit more maybe perhaps there's something um, that we could take away from this. And it's not all that different to um, have people write things to a president or a person in authority. In fact, Um, This week, if you were following me on Facebook, I put out there, hey, we're going to start this series. If you could write one letter to a president, what would it be? And we had a couple people kind of respond and do that. And a lot of times it is kind of like, hey, could you fix things? Could you do this? Um, Or when you see on Twitter somebody follow somebody famous and be like, hey, Elon Musk, um, you make a lot of money. Here's my um, Cash App handle, or here's my eBay or PayPal handle. If you could just you know, drop whatever, I know you made X amount of dollars this day, just you could really make my day, and it's really funny to watch these people try and fish out 20 bucks from Elon Musk, but regardless, um, that's the, uh, I I, I wanted to do this idea of, um, in scripture, there shows up a couple of times addresses to people in high realms of authority, Uh, a king, in this instance we're going to talk about, uh, a pharaoh, and then a governor. Um, letters from like an average person to that, or or addresses, maybe not letters, but uh, an address that is made to a, a political or a power authority uh, in their life, and and what does that mean for the rest of us? Even though none of us may ever be president or pharaoh or whatever, we all have some sort of leadership in our life. We all have some sort of positional authority, whether it's uh, parents, boss, um, I don't know, employee, supervisor, something. What does it mean for us uh, in in this way? And because it's a context of you know we're coming into a new presidential campaign, I figured the tie-in would make it uh, work in this way. So it's not necessarily um, uh, an airing of grievances. Uh, That's not the kind of letter I'm talking about. It's not a request for like a stimulus upgrade. It's 600 is nice, but you know what's nicer than 600? 2,000. Uh, It's not that. It's it's more in the lines of advice and it's it is almost laughable to think what does a thirty seven year old pastor in richland washington what, can, what kind of what kind of person would think that they could offer advice to a president right like that's I understand that and I'm, I see that, and um, i I get it and I, I understand that it's really it seems almost laughable um, but I think that uh, that what I will do instead of saying this is my position on, on advice. Let's look at some scriptures. What I can do is interpret some scripture for us, or read through some scripture, or force you, because you're here, to address or look at, pay attention to uh, scripture where this sort of thing happens, and then perhaps we can take some things away. So, this is great. Uh, one posit, real quick if you're not a Christian and you're not really a church person or whatever, and you came, this, that's awesome because we try to be a church, people don't typically um, like church. Um, this is, I think there's two reasons that this is a good series for you. Number one, it's always interesting. There's always value, I think, in seeing how a church handles the church slash politics divide. Um, and you're like, ooh, edge of your seat already on, on, on that. When it, as soon as I mentioned politics, you're like, let's go, let's figure this thing out. This is be a dividing line for me, whether I stick it out or not. I think you're, you're gonna be, in, it's gonna be surprising how anti-politics I, I really try and be. And um, honestly, it's it's uh, it's so neutral, supposedly, even though it's not really a neutral subject, um, that I get kind of flack on both sides. I'm not political enough. I'm too political, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, that's perfect. I think that that's kind of where we should be in, in, in that way. Um, and then I think, number two, so not only is it interesting for you in terms of church and politics, I think what you're going to see is that there's an actual, very useful, practical, applicable principle in play that could actually genuinely help you. Because I think sometimes people approach the Bible as simply historical, and this meant a lot of things to a lot of people 2,000, 5,000 years ago, um, and it doesn't really mean much for me today. And I'm hopeful that we can change your mind with this. So, Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel's an Old Testament book. It's one of the prophet books. Um, It's kind of a little bit of a hard one to find. It's not that big. And it's like this weird Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of book. The first few chapters make a lot of sense. The last few chapters are more, like, they almost switch genres uh, in between. Um, So, it, it, uh, it turns into sort of an apocalyptic, which is a... Uh, like, lots of imagery, lots of icon- uh, iconography. Um, lots of, it'd be like reading a newspaper, and then halfway through, it decides to change to a comic book. Um, that's kind of how Daniel sort of reads. We're going to be in the front half, which reads a little bit more historical uh, in that way, but um, it is an odd book for sure. But in chapter four, there, um, what shows up is a story about a king, uh, a Babylonian king. And to provide some context for you, Historically, this takes place in sort of a parentheses of Jewish history. So the Old Testament is really about a group of people, right? These Israelites who come out of slavery in Egypt into a promised land and have like this contractual covenant relationship with God they lose their end. They, they decide to not live up to their end of the bargain, and they go into exile for 70 years in Babylon, and then they come back. And so um, a lot of the story is about uh, a um, a lot of the Old Testament is a historical narrative of interpreting what does this 70-year exile mean? What do we learn? Is God still active? Is something still playing? Is, is there anything going on at this point? Is this religion dead? What happens in, in all of this? And so this story shows up in that 70-year period where not a lot of things are taking place. Like We know they leave, and we know eventually they come back, and they're, in Nehemiah and Ezra, like they're rebuilding the city and rebuilding the wall and doing that. And then there's a long period in between that and the New Testament. But during that 70 years, we don't have a lot of information about how things were done in Babylon during that time, with the exception of Daniel is in play. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, that sort of ancient sort of culture, uh, your everybody had different gods based on kind of where you were located geographically, and if you won in battle over another group of people, what that meant and equated to was that your God was stronger than their God. Um, and so when the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple and they shut down basically the religion of the Jewish people, uh, there is a question in their mind of, it, was our God not real, or is he not the most high God? Um, is the the Babylonian god Marduk greater than our god? And so you're going to see a lot of that language show up. I'm just preparing you for the text today of a most high God or a positional. Like they didn't, uh, uh, for a lot of them, they believed in a polytheistic culture, which is everybody has their own gods. You get to do whatever you want to do. You get to do whatever you want to do. I'm just telling you mine is better than yours. And so that's why we conquered you, all right? And so you're allowed to keep your gods, but you must show that my, our God is, is the bigger of the two. So it was like this competitive kind of format sort of deal. So that that's the, the scene and the context for what's going on uh, in this story. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had a strategy, a really smart strategy of his time. He developed really one of the uh, bigger world empires. It would go on to have two of the seven ancient wonders of the world, including the wall and these hanging gardens. Um... His strategy would be this, we're going to go and we're going to expand our empire, but as we do, we're going to take the smartest and best and brightest of the people who we find there, and it's not going to be very many, it's going to be a handful of people, and we're going to bring them back to Babylon, and they're going to live in our city, and not only are they going to be here and treated as a foreigner, but I'm going to actually give them positions of authority, even though they're not technically one of us. See, a lot of times, um, we, you know, in history, nations are very excluded, we're going to go and we're going to demolish everything, and then, you know, you're going to pay us taxes and we'll leave a few people. He he recognized like I'm going to gather the wisdom. We're not the only ones that know all of these truths. If these guys are better at something than we are, if they know how to get water from here to here better than we do, why would we not bring them in and have them solve these solutions for us? Why why would we not take advantage of that opportunity? And so he would go in and say, "You, you, you, we're going to take a test, and you're going to you're going to pass the test. You're coming with me. You're going back to Babylon." you're not going to be treated as an outsider. We're actually going to treat you as an insider, and you're going to get positions of actual authority, which is a big deal uh, for this time. So you can imagine for them, um, anybody that's coming back going, this isn't that bad. This is probably, I'm surrounded by A players here. This is not as bad as, I'm not in captivity. uh," He's trying to change their focus of, let's do whatever it takes to get back to where we came from. Instead, don't you like living here? Look at all the position that you have. Look at all the money that you have, the fame, the whatever. Um, Plus, you're surrounded by really smart people. Why would you ever want to leave the brain trust that is Babylon in this way? So that's his strategy, and it works really, really well for him. Um, history, like secular history shows on goes on to say Nebuchadnezzar had developed a very big world superpower at that time, was incredibly wealthy, had a huge temple, had all of these things. Babylon was a superpower in this way, in the midst of all of this success, it, the scriptural story says that he has a dream or he calls it a dream, or some sort of vision or transcendent moment, and it shakes him to his core. Uh, He has a couple of these. One of them shows up in Daniel chapter 2, and then Daniel's involved in the solution for that, and then it occurs again, this time a little bit darker, a little bit deeper, and it shakes him a little bit more in chapter 4. So here's where chapter 4, verse 4 starts off with saying this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's writing this from a first-person narrative, pretty typical of the time from somebody in power to do some sort of a declaration, some sort of a, a writing of this style. So this Even though this is kind of autobiographical and feels weird to show up in Scripture, like, was Nebuchadnezzar an author of the Bible? In a way, yes. Like, Daniel figured that this would be kind of kept because this seems to be a royal proclamation that was kind of made public to all of the extenuating kingdoms, or part of that kingdom at the time. All right. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, right. little ego there. That's fine. We'll let it go. I had a dream that made me afraid. In this dream, the dream uh, focused on this tree, this big giant tree. And it says that all of the animals came and gathered under this tree. And there was a river that ran through. And so they were well fed and they were well rested and well watered and had all of the things that they they would ever need. And there was a, a great tangible sense of peace living under this tree. And then all of a sudden, at, when this, in this picturesque moment, a voice comes out and says, cut down this tree and grind it down to its stump and scatter the animals. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> he's trying to figure out, like, what is this voice? What does this mean? Who, am I the tree? Is Babylon the tree? What's going on in the context of this? So he, he decides to call all of his like really smart people, because he's surrounded by a bunch of smart people, and say, who can interpret this for me who can interpret this dream for me and i'll i'll reward them with positions of authority or money or whatever um, and so Daniel eventually shows back up because I think he probably remembers, Daniel did something like this for me in the, in the first place. Let's bring him in and make him one of these people. Daniel shows up and has this messenger, this interpretation for the king and for the people who are surrounding him. And he says this, the decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones, or this is kind of an interesting thing, this idea of messengers, that word translates into watchmen. If you're like a watchman person, this is kind of like, it's a modern day, like um, what are those called? Action comics? No, no that's not the right. Word, anyways. Uh, uh angel, th- there that's kind of the, the declaration. There's that's the person going on. This decision is announced by the messenger. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. So He's he's interpreting this and he's going, he's he's preparing them for this scenario where I'm about to introduce to you a God who is bigger than all of these things that you know. Like you think I you know, you go out and you say, Look at this thing, look at this tree that I've built, this kingdom that I've built, where peace is accessible to all people. And Daniel's about to say, There's a most high God at factor in this scenario that you have not factored in, that has given you this and can take it away at any time. So Daniel says, I can tell you what it means, but I'm going to have, you know, it's going to be, Daniel knows immediately upon hearing this, um, the the king telling the context of this dream, "Um, listen, you are not going to like what I have to say. And in this scenario, in the ancient context, you did not want to be a messenger of bad news to a king about him potentially losing his authority, Because a lot of times, you know that phrase, shoot the messenger comes from? Stuff like this right here, right? And so I'm sure he, at this point, Daniel, is probably like, I'm willing to tell you what it is. I am going to need to sign, have you sign this like NDA sort of like don't shoot the messenger sort of clause before I tell you what this is because my life is in jeopardy in this. And he goes on to say, I wish this was a dream that your enemies sort of had and not you. But uh, this is your interpretation, your majesty, verse 24. And this is the decree... The most high. So this is the, the, again, this is the phrase that he keeps using uh, over and over again. This, this most high, this most high. Again, playing into this polytheistic mini-God sort of culture, saying it's fine that you want to believe in Marduk and all of these kind of things. But I'm telling you, there's something most there's there's something bigger than that I love this because it kind of speaks to kind of our cultural context of everybody going you believe this I believe this I believe this yeah okay that's fine but there's like a most high there's like something out there he doesn't attach the Jewish Yahweh name to this he leaves this open as most high which might offend people who are like no 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 this needs to be absolutely like specifically you need to be mentioning God as we as the judeo-christian take notices it right and Daniel he says, "You know, I'll leave it as it is, and it's going to be fine. It's it's the uh, it's the Most High God has issued. He's but the but Nebuchadnezzar is he's issued something against you uh, in this way. Uh, verse twenty five: You will be driven away from people, and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox, and be drenched with the dew of heaven." Seven times, and there's a lot of kind of questions about what a seven times mean? Probably years, but who knows? could be a bunch of different things. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anybody he wishes something's going to happen to you. And eventually it does. It says scripturally, and by the way, in secular history, there's this, there's this talk about how something weird happened to this king. We don't exactly know. He went through like a mental breakdown of sorts. And, and Daniel lays this out for us, if you believe Daniel's interpretation or, or version of the story, and he begins to go through this like mental breakdown where he becomes almost like thinking that he's an animal, or he acts animalistic in his ways of doing things. Something He lets himself go. His personal hygiene goes out the window. Um, everything's kind of like, he, he breaks down in some sort of way, and the rest of the kingdom, like this, or his, his close like palace officials, try and keep this a secret for a while. Something's going to happen to you, and everybody's going to cover for you for a little bit. Hey, the king can't talk today. He's uh, not feeling well, right? Uh, the king can't meet with you. He's, he's double booked. He's got some things going. He's fine. Don't worry about it. He's fine. But something's happened. But eventually, this story is going to leak out. And eventually, I think it leaks out to the point where Nebuchadnezzar eventually just issues an edict telling the whole story about it just because I can't keep the secret anymore. Uh, whatever. This is, this, is, um, this is a big deal. And he's basically telling him, something's going to happen to you, and it's going to continue until... You acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever until you, until you recognize that heaven rules. And he has a conversation with this king, and his conversation leads to eventually a point where he says, hey, it doesn't have to be this way, though. I'm predicting something for you, but it doesn't have to be this way. It's conditional upon something. That's the next verse. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty... I don't know if this is going to actually play out, but here's my advice to you. If I could write a letter to you, here's what it would say. Your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins, renounce, repent, whatever, repent from your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. If you'll just do a couple of things, if you'll consider yourself to be accountable to some higher power, to recognize that a most high God has given me this authority, and if you'll be more justice-oriented towards the poor and the oppressed, and it sounds like a reasonable request, I think, to most of us a good sound bit of advice to somebody in positional authority, really dictatorial authority. He can do whatever he wants. He's the king. He's not a president with checks and balances. He is the one. There's there's nobody he's got to appeal to. And in in, in this scenario, it sounds reasonable, except as history shows us, to people who are in positions of incredible power, right? You wonder, that doesn't even sound like a, a big thing to do. I know, I know. But when you look historically at people who have no checks and balances, who get to do things the way that they want to do because they're the king, they're the emperor, they're the chairman, they're the whatever, what you see is exactly the opposite of this. A lack of accountability to anyone or anything, an injustice to the poor and the oppressed. So Daniel is offering this bit of advice, and it doesn't record Nebuchadnezzar's immediate response or his reaction or whether this phased him in any way, whether he lost sleep on this or didn't lose sleep on this. The next verse is like a big fast-forward button, and what it says is this, Daniel chapter 4, verse 29, 12 months later. So to recap, he has a bad dream. It shakes him to his core. Daniel interprets this and says, there, there's, If you keep on this path, there's going to be some bad things happening to you. But then, 12 months later, nothing inflates an in ego like delayed consequences, does it? Nothing inflates a, "I can keep getting away with this, like delayed consequences as you've heard or maybe told somebody in your life, hey, if you keep spending your money like that, if you keep drinking like that, if you keep eating like that, if you keep drinking Mountain Dew like that, I'll just take that personal, if you keep investing that risky sort of way that you do, like I'm just telling you, Right? That's what that's the phrase that we've heard, that's the phrase that we've used, that's the phrase of whatever. We've we've said those things, and the problem is that they go, they the, the first time that you hear it, you go, okay, I'll do it with trepidation this time. But if you can keep doing something, if you get a warning like that, but then you can keep doing it for twelve months and keep getting away with it, you begin to feel invincible you begin to feel like maybe they were wrong in that warning. Maybe they're just jealous of my ability to kind of do this, get away with this, and kind of keep this sort of thing up. I think that's genuinely what happened in this context. I think at first, Nebuchadnezzar's like, yeah, dude, that's really smart. I'll take that to heart. But then like nothing happened to him for 12 months. So why would you not think you could just continue to do that. Maybe Daniel was just jealous of my power and my authority. So, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said audibly, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? We're kind of a culture that's like focused on pronouns right now. Look at these pronouns. Look at the ones he's using here I, me, my. My majesty, my stuff, my thing. Even as the words is verse 31. Even and by the way, how do we know the story? He's probably alone on the rooftop. The reason we know the story is because Nebuchadnezzar is probably recounting this for his kids, for his kingdom, for his people, for his friends later on at some day, going, This is what happened for me. And I'm telling you immediately, even as the words were on his lips. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Taken is a strong word because if you've ever had something taken from you, what that means is that you're not ultimately in charge. If something is taken from you, like if you're in charge, you don't get things taken from you, you take from others, right? Or can take from others, hopefully you don't. But if something is taken from you, if your health is taken from you, and what that means is no amount of money, no amount of success, no amount of fame, no matter amount anything amounts to anything to change that situation, then perhaps there's a wake-up call involved that you are not in control, right? If something is taken from you, you're not ultimately in charge. So what we see in this scenario, if I could boil all this down to kind of one phrase, has, and I've, I've used this one before because I've preached on this text before and several years ago, but this is a principle that has stuck with me for so long. Leadership in this scenario is a stewardship. It's a stewardship. It's an opportunity to steward something, to be, I, I temporarily own it, and I'm responsible and accountable for what I do with it. Leadership is a stewardship. It's temporary, and you're accountable. What, is, what was the message that Daniel had to the king that day? King Nebuchadnezzar, amazing. You know, this, this kingdom that you've built. That you've got two of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That's insane. That's, that's, that's good numbers, right? You've been undoubtedly successful in all that you do. Please, 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 in your position of authority, never forget that what you have, your leadership is temporary. It's temporary, it's a stewardship, and you're accountable to it. You're accountable to it. There is a most high thing above you that can still choose to take or give or whatever. So you're not ultimately in control and you're accountable. So be really, really smart about how you handle whatever positions of power that you have in this way. This is what absolute power cannot see. It's just a blind spot. Absolute power trains people to think, I'm accountable to nobody. I get to do what I want and nobody can, I'm, since I'm the king I, or the emperor or whatever, I define what's right or wrong. Nobody can point a finger at me and say, well, that's wrong what you just did. Look at who defines right and wrong. I do for you. That's what ultimate power teaches you. All right. He's not finished. Verse 32, you'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you by the time until you acknowledge. He reminds him. he recounts or replays again this this prophetic imagery of what's going to happen to you, until you acknowledge that the Messiah is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth and gives them to anybody he wishes. He immediately goes into the mental breakdown. Like I said, the, the, the palace tries to cover this up for a while, uh, and it's not successful in this way. Verse 34 finishes up uh, this thing. He predicts this future event as well. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. I, royal proclamation once again telling you that this, this time period has passed, this seven whatevers have passed. I, until I raised my eyes towards heaven, my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 37, he concludes this with this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And I'm talking about that from experience. This is not a, I think he could probably do this. I know he can do this because I've lived this. This is him. And Nebuchad- And Daniel isn't done telling the story. That's the end of chapter four. But there's a chapter that goes beyond this. Nebuchadnezzar dies. Um, his son eventually, or probably his son, there's some kind of conflicting evidence that's out there, but whatever. Somebody takes over for him, probably his son. But eventually he retires from a job that is a king, which you never hear about, right? Um, nobody would be shocking if Queen Elizabeth came out today and she's like, I think I'm just done being queen. It's kind of weird, but I'm done, right? Um, in history, there's been one pope who'd like just up and quit one day. Some of them quit because they get old. One of them was like, I think I'm just done being pope, right? It's just weird. It's super weird. You should look it up. Um, nobody quits this kind of this, this king quit and he left it to his son. So, um... Who identifies as the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, even though in the text he's going to say that my father, he's referring to a family thing. Anyways, and everything you think about, a guy who inherited a business from his dad, who inherited a business from his dad, everything you think about somebody who's in that kind of a position, that's, think about it like that. But instead of a business, it's a world superpower. So this guy is cocky. He, got, he thinks he's something because he has something, but he didn't do anything to earn it. It was just all your daddy, you're just a daddy's kid, right? So anyways, um, the Persian Empire uh, lays siege to this city. Babylon goes through these kind of waves and and leadership and all this kind of stuff, and Cyrus the Great comes out of Persia and begins, like, that's the next big world empire. They're going to take over. Historically, it goes uh, Babylon and Persia, and then on and on, and all the way to the Romans. But Babylon, Persia is, is expanding, and they're they're outside of the city of Babylon, and they lay, lay siege to the entire city. And inside the city, Belshazzar's losing this. He knows he's everybody knows he's going to lose. He, for some reason, doesn't think he's still going to lose. Like there's something about him, like the ego that just like, even though they're outside the city walls, he decides to throw a banquet to show how many provisions they have in place to survive this siege. It's an arrogant move, and it shows up, actually, in, again, in secular history, too. If you uh, go to the notes page on this, I, I included kind of a Wikipedia page about Belshazzar, because I think the story is intricate and, and really interesting, uh, even though I'll kind of breeze through it a little bit today, but you should dive into that at some point if you're interested in this kind of information. But, um, so imagine, imagine, like, this is your last night, probably, and you decide to host a big banquet, even though you probably need all the resources that you you need to kind of of survive the siege, and and you're just being reckless with what you have. And as a part of it, he says, um, he orders his people to go bring out all of the relics, bring out all of the gods and all of the things of all of the different countries that we conquered, When they would go through and conquer a a temple or or whatever city, they would bring back all of their different gods, and they would prop them up and be like, we beat that god, we beat that god, we beat that god, we beat that god, right? We beat all these gods. And so he says, bring them all out. I want to see them. I want to be able to relive our glory days, even when, like, everybody knows the days are, hours are counting down. But, like, remember how awesome we were? We killed all these people. Anyways, he does this this, this sort of thing. And it says that they brought out... The, the plates and the silverware and the goblets of the Jewish people, because, and the interesting part of this one is, when Babylon came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, they showed up at this temple and they went in, and because the Israelites believed in this, we shall not fact, manufacture any sort of graven image to our God, Yahweh God, there were no idols. There is no Jewish idol, this is our God that we worship. They went into the holy of holies in this temple area, and the only thing they found was silverware because of the the, the feast at the preceed. So they're like, "Well, we'll just take goblets and knives and stuff, I guess." This is this is symbolic of what we we do. So every other nation has all of these gods, and then we have these goblets for them. And so he says, "Well, we'll we'll drink from these goblets. We'll use these as part of our feast and whatever." <clears throat> During the feast, a hand appears, Daniel chapter five, and starts writing. On the wall, like imagine, imagine us here today, and all of a sudden this hand appears and starts writing on the wall. That would freak most of us out, if not all of us. Hopefully, um, so. By the way, and if you've ever used the phrase "I he saw the writing on the wall" or like you know, um, I don't know, the cowboy saw the writing on the wall, that kind of thing. Um, that's the uh, that you're, you're quoting scripture. You're more biblical than you even knew. Um, this happens and this, this phrase or this, this, these words show up on this, on this wall and they can't interpret it. They don't know what it means. And so they do this thing again where they go, if anybody can read this, I'll give them a great reward. And the king literally says, I'll give him third in line for the throne. Because my dad's kind of still in it, but I'm kind of number two, but really number one, let's be honest. I'll give you number three. And somebody, inter- or somebody remembers Daniel's interpretive abilities. Daniel's probably extremely old at this, at this point. He walks in with his cane on, and he answers the king in verse 17. Hey, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. Which I love, because he's like, everybody knows, who wants to be third in line for a kingdom that's going to last for, I don't know, two hours? Like, what is this? It's like being nominated for the outgoing administration's Secretary of State, right? If if Trump nominated Secretary of State tomorrow, he would be like, I think I'm good. I like we're good. I mean, it'd be great on the resume. Maybe I don't know, whatever. Um, Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, uh, here's what his his interpretation. Verse seventeen. Oh, and before he reads this, he has like the audience. The attention of the audience. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. He recaps for him everything that he probably already knows. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations of peoples uh, of every language dreaded and they feared him. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived at the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. And this might've been new info for some of them. Like I'd heard kind of rumor something about that, but I didn't know for sure. But this would have been kind of a thing to look at Belshazzar and say, you know this. You, especially a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar in this royal proclamation or this teaching or this... Nebuchadnezzar had this, like, come to Jesus moment, even though Jesus wasn't on the scene yet, but this come to Jesus moment where he's like, I screwed up. Like, I was incredibly prideful. I didn't find myself accountable to anybody, and I treated the oppressed like they were oppressed. And then I had to change my ways because I realized this. And and, and so Belshazzar is is being addressed by, by Daniel here going, like, you know this. Verse 22, but you, his son... Have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, verse 23, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in your hand the life, your life, and all of your ways. And he's probably pointing around the room as he's talking, gold, silver, all these kind of different idols in front of him. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. It's over for you. And secular history shows that on October 12th of five-something BC, I can't even remember the year on the top of my head, but... um, that Cyrus the Great and his army besieged and eventually went through, made their way through the walls of Babylon in and uh, killed Belshazzar on that night. And it's, it's this story that ends like, ends almost as it begins with this phrase, the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whoever he wishes. The most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of of men and gives them to whomever he wishes. Leadership is a stewardship. It's temporary and you are accountable. And I don't know, I'm closing with this, I don't know what kind of a lens of leadership you have in your life watching this for wherever you're watching this. Whether you're thinking through this of like, it's it's semi-easy for us to realize that our role as parent is semi-temporary, or at least it changes. I'm a parent of a toddler. I'm a parent of a teen. I'm a parent of an adult kid or whatever. But like, I know it's temporary. It doesn't feel temporary in the moment. I, whatever job that you hold, position, you have people that report to you or submit hours to you or ask you, what do you need me to do and to-do lists and all that kind of stuff. There, there can be a sense when it inflates this ego and I'm in this position and I deserve it and I put in however many years here and I got this education. And I went to school for this and I'm uh, and, 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 um. And we can think that, like, we deserve this, or that we're in the right, or it just inflates this ego or, or, or something, and we, we, we fail to realize that what we do is all temporary. The house that you live in, you will live in it for a time, but you will not live in it forever. Um, the money that you have in your bank account is yours for now. Um, everything that we have is temporary. Um, it's a stewardship issue. And ultimately, if you believe in a most high God, uh, something out there, that means that probably it can be taken from you. Therefore, you are accountable. We are accountable. And when we're able, here's what happens. When we're able to focus on the reality of this, as Nebuchadnezzar did in the story, and perhaps we can do or should do as well, when we're able to focus on this and then you look back down at who or what is in front of you, you will begin to treat them differently. When I realize that I am... Accountable to a God, a Most High. When I realize that any sort of authority that I have is temporary, then when I get down to the nitty-gritty, and I realize I'm dealing with people and things and eternal beings and all of this, then I treat them differently than I do. I hold on to my money. I spend my money differently than I do. I, the words that I say, uh, the the aggressiveness at which I do it, or the the cutting remarks, or the wisecracks, or the whatever. I realize. Um, that that's not really like, uh, uh, I'm accountable for the things that come out of my mouth. This is, it changes the way that you do things. So if by some weird chance, I could write a letter to our incoming president, it would show up in the Oval Office and he would actually read it and perhaps take advice from a 37-year-old pastor in North Richland. My part of the phrase, part of the message that I would send would be something like, this, or along these lines. Dear Mr. President, while it's true that you are ultimately, that you are accountable to we, the people, you are ultimately accountable to someone much greater. Please, please, remember your leadership, even yours, is temporary, and you are accountable. And my prayer is that that's not something we would go, yeah, that's really good. You should let him know that, because blah, 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 blah. All right. But we're looking over the shoulder of this letter that's been written, this message that was sent to a king, and the question that becomes for us is, what do we do with this? How do we? What kind of a lens? What kind of leadership? What kind of, what kind of a thing can we understand of our lives being a stewardship? That it's temporary, and that we will be held accountable for it. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that uh, <clears throat> whatever scenario and circumstances we find ourselves in, that there's something in this for us. This temporary nature of just being in existence of itself, but then also um, any sort of resources that we have, any sort of uh, positive things about us, it's it's temporary and that we are accountable. So give us the wisdom to know how to leverage those for your glory, not for our own personal pronoun glory, um, something bigger than that. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life and the courage to do something about it in your name.